gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Right? Welcome to Remarkable a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we are talking about B2B marketing lessons from Air, the movie, with help of special guest, Vice President of Marketing at Gigster, Martha, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Ian? Wonderful to be chatting with you. You know, we've chatted on different podcasts, different times, and today bringing you to Remarkable is quite a joy. I'm excited to be here. You guys are always one of the best, one of the best to record with. I <laughs> will. We'll take it. So starting <laughs> off, why the heck did you pick Air to talk about? Well, a couple different reasons. One, I had just watched it recently. <laughs> I was really excited to watch that movie. But I watched it because I thought it was like the Michael Jordan story. And to me, it really was a marketing movie, right? Like it was a movie about how Nike was able to position themselves differently from Adidas and Converse at the time. And they put all their eggs in one basket. And now, you know, I own Jordans. Jordans are like the most famous shoe. Michael Jordan was one of the greatest athletes. So anyway, I wanted to chat about it. Hey, everybody. Uh... We just signed Michael Jordan! I love it. And it's it really is a marketing story. And the story of, of Michael Jordan, the athlete, is intertwined with Nike in a way that really no two brands have ever been sort of that connected, which is, which is cool. And so we'll get into all that. But zooming out, tell us uh, about your current role at Gigster. Yeah, so I'm leading the marketing team over here at Gigster. Gigster is a two-sided platform. We're delivering custom software to Fortune 1000 companies, whether you want an AI app, a website, what have you. And on the other side of the platform, we've got a bunch of very talented machine learning engineers, IT resources, people that are difficult to find. So you can outsource your projects to us and we'll deliver your custom project without you having to hire actual engineers or filter through a bunch of contractors or that sort of thing. So it's pretty fun. I think it's an interesting time to be here. I joined for a lot of different reasons, but I would say the primary one is the market is in this interesting place where people aren't necessarily investing in FTEs and full-time employees. So how can we help companies meet their growth goals and their go-to-market goals without them having to hire full-time expensive resources that could be underutilized eventually? Yeah, it is the perfect time, and we're going to learn all about how content is part of your go-to-market here in a little bit. But first, Meredith, what is AIR? 
So Air is a movie. It's a sports drama. It's based on a true story, as Martha mentioned, about Nike's deal with Michael Jordan to create Air Jordans, this now iconic sneaker line. And basically the backstory is in 1984, Nike was about to shut down its failing basketball shoe division. So in basically like a last-ditch effort, Nike's basketball talent scout, whose name is Sonny Vaccaro, he said to find this new spokesperson for Nike basketball sneakers. So he immediately basically had his mind on rookie Michael Jordan, rookie at the time, obviously. I'm willing to bet my career on Michael Jordan. Come on, man. You ask me what I do here. This is what I do. I find you players and I can feel it this time. Even though he was an unlikely pick because Jordan's preferred brands were Adidas and Converse, and he would technically be too expensive for their budget. They were pretty low budget at the time. So nevertheless, I mean, there was lots of back and forth, obviously, and Martha, I'm sure, has more details than I do. But the deal comes through, and there's one stipulation that I want to kind of explore, which is that Jordan would get a cut of every pair of Air Jordans sold. And so the Air Jordan was born. And in its first year, they far exceeded expected sales. What's the most we ever sold on a shoe? $3 million? It's one guy. How much could it be? I expected about $3 million in sales, and they brought in $162 million in sales, which is so wild. So this is kind of where I thought the story got, I mean, even more interesting. So the movie was directed by Ben Affleck and written by Alex Convery. And it stars Damien Young as Michael Jordan, Viola Davis as his mother, Matt Damon as the talent scout, Sonny Vaccaro, who I mentioned before. Um, and Ben Affleck is in it too. He's plays the um, Nike co-founder and chief executive, Phil Knight. It stars Jason Bateman, Chris Messina, right? These really like very well-known names. This is where it gets interesting for me, which is it's the first movie from Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's new production company. They're calling it Artist Equity. It's an artist-led studio that also gives creators a cut of the profit from projects. And so this makes sense that Air was their first movie because it kind of goes along with their theme of like artists or creators, like the people doing the work are getting appreciated, getting more, basically benefiting from the success of their project. I agree that the business is unfair. It's unfair to my son. It's unfair to people like you. But every once in a while, someone comes along that's so extraordinary that it forces those reluctant to part with some of that wealth to do so not out of charity, but out of greed, because they are so very special. And even more rare, that person demands to be treated according to their worth because they understand what they are worth. So Air was this conscious choice as their first film because it reflected the idea of like giving back to its talent. And lastly, if you want to watch it, Air is on Amazon Prime, if you want to stream it. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, so Martha, why is the movie Air remarkable to you? I mean, first of all, uh, can we say spoiler alert a lot on this on this segment? Yeah, because well, I feel like I'm, I'm going to spoil movies for people here, but... Oh, I think we all know what happens in terms of, I think we know that Jordan gets the deal and, uh, and Jordan's takeoff. So I feel like it's hard to spoil that part of the movie, but yeah, spoilers for, for the rest of the actual yeah, sorry. <laughs> tension. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm okay with it. I've seen it, but like for your audience. So... In my mind, what was really cool is at the time, this was a first for the industry, right? 
Michael, in the movie, Michael and his family go and meet with Adidas and Converse, and they offer him a standard, like, here's what we've done for all the greats before you. And Matt Damon in the movie takes a completely different approach and puts all his eggs in one basket around this rookie player that most people are like, hmm, okay, maybe. He puts all his eggs in one basket. He puts together a whole strategy around the shoe being defined by this human. A shoe is just a shoe until somebody steps into it. Then it has meaning. The actual Jordan logo is a picture of Michael Jordan, like making a, a dunk. And there's a, I forget the, the guy's name that actually designed the shoe, but he worked all weekend long. Like it was like a 48 hour Saturday, Sunday, all weekend long project. To what do I owe the honor? I need a shoe, Pete. I look extremely much. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. How long do we have? Monday. Step into my office. They put the pitch together and they tell Michael Jordan, we're going to treat you as a unicorn versus how Adidas and Converse would be treating you and look at the star power that we're giving you when they didn't necessarily have the budget and they didn't necessarily have this in place before, right? And so to me, it's a fascinating story of bucking the trend, like forget what's been done before and try to like blaze your own trail. Now, I think that kind of deal has informed other sports deals, which we can we can talk about. But, you know, they were first to market with that. And they put together a whole package for Jordan that made it enticing where he was like, OK, I can't refuse this. And I thought it was really cool that Viola Davis, his mother, is the one that figures out like, OK, you're also going to give us royalties on this shoe basically forever. You know, Michael will get a percentage of the revenue of the sale of each shoe that is sold. I'm sorry. Not all Nike shoes, just the ones with his name on them. Oh, yeah. So cool. And it's so so <laughs> funny to think of that interaction as, like, having a parent there, right? Is, is like, when <laughs> when we think about, like, negotiating our our salaries, like, our parent, maybe we go talk to him afterwards. <laughs> uh, but most people's parents are not, are not an expert in negotiations anyways. And Michael Jordan's mom being so pivotal doesn't hurt when it's being played by Viola Davis too, who's, who's the freaking <laughs> goat. But it's so important to the story. And that's like one of those things that I think gets lost in history. When you think about these things that, I mean, the dude is 22, right? I mean, he didn't, he did not imagine that he would, it would, this would be a billion dollar brand, right? You know, like that's just not what happened. But the idea of just to get that little piece of upside in the, in the campaign is pretty, pretty revolutionary. They did so many other like remarkable, bold things. So at the time, the NBA had like a stipulation on the shoes that they had to be, I, I don't remember, don't quote me, but it was like 80% white or something that the shoe had to be a very certain like look and feel. And Nike paid all of the fines for Michael Jordan to wear these red and black Jordans, which is how they launched. 51% of the shoe has to be white. NBA is extremely strict about it. They'll fine him. They'll fine him? $5,000 a game. We're fucked. What about more red? A lot more red. And what about if we just pay the fines? And they got a ton of press out of it. It's actually really genius. I don't know if it was intentional or if they realized like how good that you know, what was going to come of it. But before Converse and Adidas were the shoe to wear and Nikes were kind of like your dad's shoe, nobody wants to wear those. But they brought in that cool factor by 
leveraging these kind of negative things that were happening to them. Like, you're going to get fined for every game and we'll cover it. Don't worry about it. And then everybody wanted the shoe and they built the demand. And like Meredith said, like, I think they expected three million and they got thousands more (laughs) in percentage wise, you know? Yeah. And I think it also speaks to this idea of that there's no traffic on the extra mile, right? Like we talk about this in our marketing campaigns that your competitors are rarely going to go the extra mile. Like they're going to stop at some point with their marketing. They're going to stop at some point with their sponsorship. They're going to stop at some point with, you know, their ebook or with their webinar or with their podcast or whatever, and just say, okay, this is good enough. Cause that's like most of us, right? Like most of the time your work is once it's good enough, you know, I always say good enough for government work that you stop. And Nike didn't do that. They figured out a way to make a pitch so custom, so compelling, so interesting for Michael Jordan. Jordan has made it abundantly clear, painfully clear that he doesn't want to come here. So you would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. Do you have that? Yeah, I can tell him the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is fucking terrible. I do not love it. And they believed in it too and invested in it too and did all these things to make sure that it was successful and that they had aligned incentives. They were both going to profit off of the shoe being great. And once they were together, like they're the only option that each other had, right? At that point where, I mean, Nike doesn't have other options. They don't have any other marquee, marquee stars. And it's really easy, like in hindsight, to say like, well, it's Michael Jordan and he was obviously amazing in North Carolina, uh, et cetera. But Michael Jordan wasn't even the first pick of the draft. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. It took balls. I mean, that's why we're all here. Don't change that now. I mean, if you look at him, if you really look at Jordan, like I did, you're going to see exactly what I see. Which is what? The most competitive guy I have ever seen. He is a fucking killer. And so, and that's like another one of those things that I think, you know, is forgotten in this is like, yes, he was a superstar you know, potential. He was amazing in North Carolina. He was going to be a star and a lot of people believed in him, but see, you know, so much so that he wasn't even the first pick in the draft. So like it was a bigger bet than even, you know, then again, hindsight is twenty twenty. We all know what happened, but at the time it was not, it was not quite like that. I, I love the, like, let's put all our eggs in one basket because their backs were up against the wall. 1984 has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. And there's so many times where we have to innovate or we have to figure something out when your back's up against the wall, but they knew they didn't really have anything to lose. Like that's how they were approaching because they were shutting down this division. It was either like, we're not going to have basketball shoes or we're going to get Michael Jordan, you know, (laughs) and they made the right bet, but it was like, it's a big bet, you know? Because now after what you did, unless you make some fucking miracle dream deal with the Jordans, unless you stop making that fucking air soul and start making the entire company air fucking Michael Jordan, I'll bury you alive. Yeah, it's also, again, like hindsight is twenty twenty, but back then, like, Nike started out as a running shoe in Oregon, right? Like, the, with with Phil Knight and, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his, on his name. Uh, the other guy making making shoes in a waffle iron you know what i mean like making the soles of shoes in a waffle iron so and like giving them to prefontaine etc and going from that to to basketball shoes is a huge jump right like you don't like back then they were not you know they they might not have made it and it's like basketball shoes are synonymous with with 
Nike now, but again, back then it wasn't, it wasn't certain. I think that's what makes the movie so great. And in my mind, it was a marketing movie, <laughs> you know, like I was like, this is the greatest story of all time. It's very inspiring. All marketers should watch it, whether you like basketball or not. <laughs> what other sort of marketing takeaways did you have uh, watching the show? I mean, definitely that stories are powerful, right? If you, if you watch the movie, the pitch that they have, it's about Michael Jordan. It's tailored to the audience. We build a shoe line around just him. We tap into something deeper, into the player's identity, into that. What's that mean? He doesn't wear the shoe. He is the shoe. The shoe is him. It's about inspiring him and, and who he can be and who he grows up to be. And so stories are more powerful than we think, right? Like, And honestly, that's what gets the shoe also sold eventually, right? Like the inspirational story of Michael Jordan. Yeah, I think a big takeaway for me is like the idea of the origin story that like we all love an origin story. Like we all love it, you know? It's why a lot of times, you know, they're done clunkily, but like we do a podcast and sort of like, what is your first job in this? Or how did you get started? Because people's path to get where they are is often extremely nonlinear. And so getting that origin story, I think if you're telling any type of marketing story, whether it's a customer story or or whatever, that being able to start at the beginning with of that with uncertainty, with painting the picture in the audience's mind that like this might not work, that this crazy thing might not happen, that getting the person's headspace of where they were in that moment, how they felt in that moment is so important to the story. Of Michael Jordan? Yeah. What you gonna offer? The whole budget. As in nobody else getting no money. Phil is gonna fire you. Well, I can handle Phil. The key to Phil is make him afraid. He'll get us both fired. And I think that that's one of the things about telling Michael Jordan's story and the story of Nike in the shoe to paint the picture of like, he was not a, a finished product. Nike shoe division was not a finished product. And that from all of this, that a few people made some really big decisions and it ended up obviously working really well. I also think to piggyback off of that is that we all root for the underdog, whether right. it's in marketing, in a story, whatever, like it's human nature to root for an underdog. And in this case, I know it sounds crazy. We're calling Michael Jordan an underdog and Nike an underdog. But to your point, they were, you know. And people don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA all-star shoe. Play like magic, dribble like Isaiah. That's what it is. Do you know Run DMC doing a song about Adidas? So I have a another takeaway from this from this story is that sometimes in business we rest on our laurels and we forget where we came from. <laughs> and that Nike, who made this brilliant personalized pitch to Michael Jordan in 19, 1984, did the exact opposite with Steph Curry in 2013. So they go into the pitch meeting with Steph Curry. Steph Curry had come off of a handful of injuries and he goes in with his father, similar to the way that Michael Jordan's mother is there. Hello, Mrs. Mrs. Jordan. Uh, my name's Sonny Vaccaro. I'm with Nike. I believe Mr. Falk made it clear that we weren't interested. Yes, I, I was told not to call. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? And the person's pitching Steph Curry, and they keep calling him Stefan. So they're pronouncing his name wrong. 
and then one of the slides in the PowerPoint deck didn't have his name on there, but it had Kevin Durant's name on there. And Del Curry said, I just stopped paying attention after that. And after that, they got pitched by Under Armour, who didn't have a basketball presence essentially at all. And they gave him an extremely compelling pitch. And Nike lost Steph Curry. Steph Curry come on, went on to you know become one of the best players in NBA history and win a bunch of championships and has an underrated tour now with Under Armour, has tons of Under Armour ties, like left, right, and center. And like it's crazy to think that Nike, who we, you know, is is the the best in the game in a million ways, that even they could not even do the thing that that they were made famous for. And I think it's a good reminder to marketers that it's like dance with the thing that brought you there, right? If if part of your thing is having these personalized pitch decks, you better make sure that you treat every athlete, every underdog with the same amount of respect because you don't know who's going to be the one who becomes the superstar. And clearly, like, they didn't care that much about Steph Curry at that time. And, like, I, I just think that that's a fascinating part of this whole, the story of Nike and Nike basketball. I love that. I definitely think in general, just a good life lesson is don't forget where you came from. Like, you've got to keep giving it your all every, all the time, you know, or things like that can happen. You guys been here all weekend? Yeah. No, <laughs> it's uh... It was nice. It was like the old Nike days. Yeah. And I think that like people, if you're creating something that's custom anyways, it's so much easier to really dig into what the person wants. Like for the Steph Curry story, one of the things is that he grew up and he had gone to Chris Paul's camps when he was a young basketball player. And so he wanted to be able to do camps, but that wasn't what Nike offered him. And they just didn't sort of see him on the level of other superstars. But that was like a big thing for him. So who knows if they had just said, hey, you can do some camps, which again, like how much does that cost? How much does some camps cost? Like, I mean, like I know people run basketball camps, like it ain't that hard. And it wasn't something that was in the deal. And that's something easily they could have put in the deal and maybe they would have won it. And with, with Nike, there's no way that that Nike deal gets done if they don't give Jordan a percentage of the shoes. It's a big risk. You remember for the rules you break. Close the fucking deal. And obviously it was, it's like literally a billion dollar plus $2 billion uh, piece of a contract that, you know, was massively important years later. But I think that, you know, they, they won together and that was the important thing. One of the things that when we had, we had thought about sort of like getting celebrities or sponsors or sponsoring people in this is it can be tough for brands because there's like not there's not necessarily something that you can do so it's kind of tough in b2b it's like i mean could i give you a percentage of the deals one but like you could right i mean you could say hey any deals that you know you source as the xyz that we're going to give you you know make you an official partner i mean that's what partner marketing is and you know, OEMs and all that stuff, they do that sort of thing. So maybe there's a possibility, Martha, there that marketers could could incorporate something similar for B2B. So I've done this a couple of times in my past. I've done a, a, a referral program for customers. There are some customers that will be advocates for you. And they're really, really happy with your services. And typically, birds of a feather flock together. So if you know, your persona, I'm making stuff up is, you know, VPs of talent acquisition, 
they know other people. And if they recommend you, you give them a piece of the action. Now it's been as, you know, there's been situations where it's like, yeah, we'll give you a $2,000 bonus, or we'll give you two flights on any airline, you know, in the continental US, that sort of thing. But things like that work. And those deals typically, it's almost 100% close rate. If someone you know recommends this tool service company brand, and they're like, I'm really happy this is what they did for me. I mean, that regardless of how much you want to give them part of the pie, it, it always pays uh, exponentially. You know, it goes the extra mile regardless. Yeah, that's fun. I always think too, if there's a way that you can sort of like personalize or do something or give that person an additional platform to get that word out there, right? It's like, if you're going to say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to support, we're going to have this like, you know, really unique code just for you and it's just for this amount of time or it's just for this event so there's something bespoke with it but also we're going to give you like we're going to we're going to amplify your message in some way and maybe that's i don't know running paid ads against their or you know with their podcast or maybe that's you know getting them on the main stage of your conference so that they can share that publicly and you know there's something there that you can always again go the extra mile in those type of relationships to say hey if you really we're so aligned on this stuff and we want you we want you to to be an evangelist for us and you know here's some extra stuff that we could do and then the other thing is just ask them right is like just ask them like is there something else that we could do like you know the a um famous example of a non-famous example so I was talking to the CIO one time who the big thing that he wanted was a a scholarship for veterans for his high school. And that's like, that's what he wanted to do. Right. And it was like, the cost was, it was not a very big cost to be able to like do this thing. And I was just thinking to myself, I'm like, you have hundreds of companies, thousands of companies beating down this guy's door for so much money where I'm like, you could just give 5,000 bucks to this, <laughs> to this, you know, this essentially a charity. And I'm like, you probably could have saved yourself a lot of time and money doing that. But there's all sorts of things there where if you find out what the person is passionate about that you could you could make some headway. I mean, to your point, this just reminds me of in general when, you know, right now people are overwhelmed with all kinds of noise, whether it's LinkedIn, Slack, social media, what have you. And so if you're trying to do email marketing or phone outreach, make it really, really personal. The cold calls or the marketing campaigns that I react to are very personalized to me. And it feels like the company that's reaching out to me knows me. And that will always help, you know, get people engaged because it's like, oh, you cared enough to do that extra little, oomph, I will react to this somehow, you know? Yeah, 100%. Me too. And it can't just be like, you know, grabbing something that I saw off LinkedIn or whatever. Sure. Okay, so zooming out to to your marketing, your strategy. What's your content strategy at Gigster? Yeah, it's really about understanding our, our pain points of our customers. What are they looking for? What are they struggling with? Something that was really interesting to me when I joined <laughs> is that the sales team would say, Martha, our customers have money, but they don't know what they want. And I was like, like, I, I was kind of dumbfounded by this concept. Um, I now realize I was just being short-sighted. Often our customers are not technical, right? So we had a, a finance leader contact us from a hospital and he was like, we need to process payments faster. We need to, we need to have some sort of AI tool or something. All of the, our competitors are doing it. Everyone in the industry is doing it. I don't know what I need, but I have the money to invest in this so we can process payments faster. And so it's been really fascinating 
our content strategy, even though we're delivering really technical things, we need to make sure that we're zoomed out enough to talk to people about what are the problems they're trying to solve? How does it help your business go to market faster? How does it help you save money? How does it help you add value to your business and not necessarily the speeds and feeds of like AI, Web3, all these super technical things. So it's been really a fascinating shift. And truly, it's about trying to put the Gigster brand everywhere. We're still learning. We're, we're definitely in a, in a learning phase. But where is it that people are responding to us? Is it LinkedIn? Is it other websites? Is it email marketing? That sort of thing. So yeah, right now we're mitigating risk for marketing and trying all of the things. But the content strategy is really around getting really personal with the customers and understanding their pain points. And where do we have similarities across industries, regardless if you're in banking or hospitals or government or retail. And so it's been it's been a really fun challenge. And those stories are so important, too, when you have a product that can do anything, right, can do can be a lot of things to a lot of people. Getting those stories is even that much more important because when you get in that sales call and they're like, hey, I don't really know. And you're like, you know, it's I know this is going to sound weird, but this is a, you know, an amusement park uses it this way. Like, but I think it's a really good fit for you. If you just like watch this two minute video, I I think this is kind of you're saying the same thing. And they're like, wait, what? And then they see it. But like painting that picture of what someone else has done is so important when it is a little you know, confusing of like where they want to go. Totally. And showing the outcomes versus like, look at all this cool technology. It's not that the technology isn't cool, but if you're a non-technical buyer, you want to understand how it's going to help you and make your life easier, you know? I know, you know, still still new sitting in the seat, but from previous campaigns and previous, you know, stops along the way, do you have any favorite either pieces of content or content campaigns that that you've done in your career? Yeah, at Telru, actually, we had a really effective voice of the customer program. And on their website, you know, you can go to their resources site. They have a bunch of customer stories. And it's everything from like Pizza Hut to there's a a resort in the hill country here. And the name is escaping me. But we helped them hire a, a bunch of staff out at this hill country resort. And all of those it was big brands, well-recognized. We were helping them hire. People love those stories and they got a lot of replays. We did them as YouTube shorts and reels and that sort of thing. And like people engage with those and then would honestly visit our site. And again, the power of the story. Those are probably some of my favorite. Anytime you do those customer testimonial type of videos, they really, really work. <laughs> if you go and check them out, they're going to look like mini commercials for the customers, not necessarily for Talru, but it, oh, cool. it worked really well. Yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. I love stuff like that. I love like, I almost wish that I could do every type of story or video like that. Like, let's do one version of the video where it's like, obviously self serving for us. And then one version of the vis video where it's like, what if we told it with like out being self serving at all? And like, it's almost like have two different producers produce each video and like, see, like, see if you did like a bake off. I feel like that would be a fun thought experience. Some AB testing. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah, right. Uh, but I think video is a little too expensive. But you know, you get what I'm saying. Totally fair. How did you how did you view content and your strategy at Talru? I mean, same thing, right? It's really about getting to know your customer, understanding their pain points, and being able to create compelling content. People either want to be educated or, you know, they want to understand the value that the company provided. And so thinking about it from uh, outside in versus inside out, 
right? Don't try to build content that is just like self-serving or chest thumping or explains like, look at all the cool things we do. Nobody cares. People only care when you show them that you care. Does that make sense? And so how do you get to know your customer really well? What are their pain points and show them how you can help them day to day? I love it. How do you view the ROI of content and content marketing? Yeah, that's a great question. I, in general, use unique traffic to the website as a proxy for brand building. And I think that any of those hooks that are content strategy, whether it's a video, a customer testimonial video, or a demo video, or have you YouTube, all of these places as hooks that are leading back to your retail storefront, which in the B2B world is your website. And you want to look at impressions and engagement and all of that. But honestly, it's like, how many unique views are you driving to your website? And then you're able to convert from there. So that's how I think about measuring it and how I think about all the different hooks in the world, whether it's Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, what have you. And then what about formats? Like, how are you thinking about the different formats and creating content for for the different formats and channels? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, we're going to go back to the power of the story, but let's say your your story is about Pizza Hut and, and hiring. You just have to think about if it's Instagram, people are very visual. Reels are, are hot there. You've got to figure out what is the 30 second clip? What's the two minute clip for YouTube? What's the LinkedIn version of it, right? I actually, we started testing video on LinkedIn and video didn't do that well, but audio does, but it's got to be like short 20 second clips. And so testing what are the different channels and then how can you pair back the story, right? Like get one extensive long version of the story and then take snippets of it and chop it up to figure out where does it need to live? How visual does it need to be? Does it only need to be audio? That sort of thing. Very cool. Did you want to talk about something cool that you're working on or a, a marketing campaign or, or a piece of content that that's coming up? Yeah, we actually, we are having a really cool webinar that's coming up. We're going to try hitting all of the kind of B2B leaders in the different industries where we've had success to show them how easy it can be to hire Gigster and not have to go through outsourcing, uh, you know, either onshore or offshore outsourcing, just sit with us, go through a statement of work, we can deliver, you know, an app, a website, an AI tool, what have you. That's coming up in two weeks, we're going to start promoting it next week. And then there will be an ROI calculator to follow. So I'm really excited about the showing how much faster and how much less risk and less cost it brings. So I'm excited about that content piece. And I'm still excited about all the building. There's a lot to be done, but building is fun for me. If you put me in an optimization job, I'd probably get fired. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean. I'm just a builder. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, back to, back to air for a second here. So, you know, one of the things that you talked about in our, in our prep calls, this idea like necessity is the mother of invention. And one of the key parts of the story is about this talent scout. That it don't matter about what Phil is thinking or anybody's thinking. All that matters is how much do you believe? I believe in you. You know, I was actually expecting you to try to talk me out of it. You weren't going to listen anyway. And I thought that was an interesting idea from a marketing perspective because we don't necessarily have talent scouts in B2B marketing, but maybe we should, right? Like like there are certain teams who like have someone who like manages influencer or manages partner marketing or things like that. But thinking of it more like a talent scout, I think is kind of fascinating 
because if you have a talent scout and you you know need to achieve certain types of results and it forces you to be creative and it forces you to think about like what can you do a certain amount of budget what can you not do how do i find the most talent that's the most affordable like these are really interesting things that i think you know that nike was dealing with at the time but are things that are are not always done in b2b and maybe they should be yeah i like that concept i mean i think it's like a really targeted abm kind of approach <laughs> you know if you think about talent scouts and marketing yeah, because, you know, I think there's like vendors and different people that you can use for for influencer. But we have a few customers who, when they want to make a show and we start talking about who can host and those sort of things, and they sort of pull out a little Rolodex where they're like, we have like four or five people in our sort of like ecosystem that are cool. But there's this one person who we is like a total maven. They know everybody in the industry why don't we approach them and talk to them and like build a show for them? And those shows do really well. And those people just kind of understand the market. And so it's, it's always a curious thing to me if, if, you know, how do you identify talent within your ecosystem and like, who are those people who are the connectors that can have the most influence, but you kind of have to know the space really well. And you have to have someone who is part of their job. Like it has to be part of your headcount to say, who's going to source these, you know, source the talent. You make a really good point. I mean, Matt Damon, I forget the talent scout's name, but Sonny. People weren't that ex Sonny, Sonny. People weren't that excited about Michael Jordan because to your point, he wasn't the first draft pick. He was further down the line. But Sonny watched so many different videos of basketball players over and over again and he identified like the perfect person. So I think it's an approach definitely to think about. Worthy is a decoy. We've been looking at this wrong. Look, he knows he's not getting the ball. They're in a 1-3-1 one, one zone. What's going to happen the second Worthy comes across the lane? That zone's going to collapse on him, leaving Michael Jordan open in the corner, and the ball's going to go to him, and he's going to shoot it. Look, when he shoots it, he shoots it right away. He knows he's getting the ball. The play is drawn up for Jordan. Yeah, I also, I think that what's tough is, a lot of times as a marketer, you can sort of measure someone's, you know, their their swag, their, you know, presence, <laughs> their, you know, personality, their, you know. Vibe. <laughs> their vibe. And you could say, oh, that person would be a really good partner because they're going to they're gonna be able to do X, Y, Z. But it takes someone who's like technically talented to make sure that they know what they're talking about. Like it took someone who could watch basketball and there's been many times where scouts get it wrong. What should I ask you? Ask me why I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Why are you in Wilmington, North Carolina? Because I believe in your son. To say, oh, we're going to go approach this person. They're, you know, even though the, the number three pick or whatever, a number seven pick, like in Steph Curry's case, that, oh, I think that they could be a star and they have the basketball skills to do it. But like in marketing land, you know, you might not have someone who's a subject matter expert on IT or, you know, data or, you know, finance or whatever, whoever you're selling to. So you kind of need to bring in that some subject matter expert to be able to be like, hey, does this person actually know what they're talking about or are they just sort of shooting the, shooting the breeze? It's a really interesting concept. You have a great point. 
I was wondering for you, Martha, like you mentioned providing, showing value in what you're providing at Gigster to potential customers. I've heard other people talk about like how you provide something that's like free, like initially, and then either have a paywall or whatever to draw people in. But where, I guess I'm wondering like, where is that line between like the value that you're starting to provide and then where you kind of like hold them at arm's length and are like, this is what we can do, you know? No, totally fair. So think about, we don't have software like Adobe or Microsoft or anything, but think about how Adobe or Microsoft would do it. They give you a seven day free trial and then, you know, they they kind of want to get you like hooked to the product and then it's like, okay, well now you're going to have to pay. Or even all the streaming services that just reminds me of the streaming services free trials right now, you know? And I think you just have to decide what that free trial, if you will, looks like. Like, what's the length of it? How much value do you provide? And if we use the parallel of the streaming providers, you might be seeing ads, you might only get access to certain shows, but you want to entice people enough to show the value without giving away all of it for free. You don't want to do the same thing in marketing, even with your thought leadership. Think about how to explain to the customer, walk them through the problem and and what are the results, but not necessarily providing them the answer specifically for their company and their situation. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Thank you. Oh, yeah. One other thing. Uh, We wanted to make a a connection to something that's happening right now. So the modern day air, the the movie that is going to come out years from now that is very similar to this is what the MLS and Apple Plus just did for Lionel Messi, which is, I mean, I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday where they were talking about Messi going to Inter Miami. So for listeners who don't know, I know Messi's, you know, arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest soccer player of all time. He's sort of like at the tail end of his peak, but just won a World Cup. He's, I mean, it, when you watch the streets in Argentina, literally like tens of thousands of people follow him. It's like the craziest thing ever. He's, it would be like, you know, Michael Jordan and, you know, type, Tiger Woods, like combined. I mean, he's such a massive, massive superstar around the world. And he got reportedly offered a billion dollars to go to the Saudi soccer league. And he turned it down to go to MLS, which is MLS had done this thing before in the past where they got David Beckham a number of years ago when it was like very like a budding league. Now it's much more, much more established league. They've been around for a lot longer and, and him going there that essentially they pulled the Michael Jordan and they took every single thing at their disposal and threw it at him. So obviously he's going to have a very big salary, plus he's going to have a percentage of ticket sales, plus he's going to have a percentage of merch, plus Apple Plus is giving him a percentage of subscriptions to Apple Plus because that's where you can watch the MLS. Uh, I don't, I have no idea how they're doing that. Plus it was like reported that he would have some ability to like buy into a club or part of a club or something like that later on down the, down the line. I don't know how that would even work, but what's crazy here, the craziest thing from a marketing perspective is that the other owners are essentially paying for a team that they're competing with to get a global superstar, right? So like the owners are giving us essentially a percentage, like the teams are a percentage of the profits back to him. And like, when has that ever been done in history? The fact that they know that it's such a big deal that he goes to the MLS, that they would like put their teams at risk. And then he just brought, you know, two of his, his pals, 
like with him that they both signed with Inter Miami and Inter Miami, who's really bad right now at soccer, might become very good at soccer, maybe not, but it's like a total momentum shifting thing. And it's just like the Jordan story. It's like they just took every single thing that they could possibly think of and throw it at him and made it the best possible offer. And the results are already insane because, you know, Inter Miami has gone from 1 million to 10 million followers on Instagram, like in the course of like two weeks before Messi even like had been announced or posted about it or anything. And so I think that one of the lessons for me is sort of knowing when to go big and put all the chips in the table and be really creative and figure out a solution that can make sense versus, you know, no, you don't need a talent scout to know that Messi's going to be, you know, massive, massive hit here. But there are times where you can go all in and there's people that are so magnetic and so important and having that person in the MLS that all the people in the MLS just said, hey, rising tide and we got to do this thing. It's just endlessly fascinating to me from a marketing perspective that, that they would do that. And I do think that the general public is going to root for Inter-Miami because, again, it's an underdog story, right? (laughs) And so people want to watch it. It's that Cinderella story that everybody wants to come. uh, And there's that symmetry between David Beckham doing this when MLS early days and now that he's a part owner of this team, bringing in Messi, uh, that everybody loves Miami. All the soccer players love Miami. I mean, they're building Miami into be like a global hub for soccer. Like all the players who play in England, they all go to Miami for the, uh, like in the summer and stuff like that. So it's a massive bet by MLS, but it just reminded me so much of this air thing. Like we're going to watch a documentary about this or, a, or well, we're going to watch many documentaries about it, but we're also going to watch a drama about this someday because it's the same type of story. It's the same type of bet. It's the same type of, you know, put it cashing in all your chips for a once in a lifetime opportunity. And yeah, you know, I'm super excited to hear how it actually all played out. I mean, the guy turned down a billion dollars, a billion with a B. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, there's no way he's going to make that amount of money off of this MLS thing. But, but maybe there is, right? Maybe that was part of the <laughs> he pitch. Might. Right? Yeah, he might. I mean, remember the shoe story. Meredith can correct us what it was. $3 million to like $160 million. You never know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's wild. Yeah. I was just going to say, yes, he turned down a billion dollars, but they also made him feel special. Like, a billion dollars is a lot of money, and I'm sure it makes you feel special. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But like, it it's it's the legacy. It's Miami. It's all the things. Apple, everyone was pushing for him, you know? Yeah, and you juxtapose this with what Cristiano Ronaldo did, who's similar sort of stature to Messi in a lot of ways, depending on your soccer take. But they did that. He did that. He went to the Saudi League. He did all of that. And there's nowhere near the the uh, fanfare that there was for Messi going to Inter-Miami. They're not even close. And so, you know, I mean, so far, so good. But, you know, and maybe, maybe it's just a retirement tour, but you know, I mean, the guy just won the World Cup, so I think it's going to be something more than that. And then the final thing here that just sort of jumped out at me is athletes are so important to the fabric of like society, and they're very underinvested in B two B. And it just got me thinking a little bit that perhaps we should be using athletes a little more. You see a lot of people like giving tickets away, right? Like that's a very common thing. Hey, we got the skybox. Hey, we got this like. You know, we're going to sponsor this and we're going to sponsor that. But athlete endorsements are are much more rare. And I wonder if there's some value to be mined there. 
I will say that I once went to a B2B conference and I'm not going to even remember which one. It's been like 10 or 15 years and they had Magic Johnson as the keynote speaker. Oh. It was the best attended keynote speech that I've ever been to in my career. Like there were so many people and Magic came off the stage and like compared his height to like the smallest person he could find. And he was very <laughs> personable and like, but it, it was memorable, you know, like it's been probably 15 years, but I remember it to this day. I love it. That's awesome. Well, Martha, it is wonderful chatting with you as always. For our listeners, go check out Gigster. So much cool stuff to do on the platform uh, and a lot of cool marketing coming out from you and your team. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Just you guys. I would say I love joining the show. You guys have a very personalized uh, feel and I just appreciate all the love from the Caspian team. Thanks, Martha. We appreciate you. And uh, <laughs> we'll talk soon. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>